0: From Hollywood, it's Rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! And we are back. You are listening to the latest installment of Rated LGBT Radio, um, I guess unless you are listening to this at a later date, in which case there are probably newer installments. But as of this recording, obviously, this is the new one. Um, that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. I apologize up front. Um, anyway, today we have, uh, I think, what is going to be a really fascinating show. Um, uh, we are going to be talking to the author of a brand new book. Um, I saw of this book about a month ago. Uh, It was intriguing um, and is intriguing, Uh, a very um, interesting perspective that I think should be illuminating for a lot of people. Um, I hope a lot of people pick this up, read it, absorb it, and think about it. And the book is titled The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. And it is kind of a different concept because a lot of us who have grown up as lgbtq are used to especially back in the day are used to that discussion even in a positive sense even with allies even with other gay or or lesbian people where the thought was the um well you know people should not be blind for being gay because who would choose this who would choose to be gay you know you're you obviously are gay and you're innately gay, because if there was ever a point where you got to choose differently, you obviously would choose to join the majority of the heterosexual world. Um, Well, our author today is looking at it a little bit differently. Um, Her name is Jane Ward. She is a professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside, and she's written a number of books, the latest of which is the book titled The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. And it is looking at straight culture under a fine-tooth comb. I guess I just um, doubled up on uh, metaphors there. um, Under a microscope um, and with fine-tooth comb. But really looking at the reality of what is there and how in many ways being heterosexual is a bit of a tragedy in the culture that is today um, surrounding heterosexuals and LGBTQ people, too, by osmosis. So we'll be talking to her in just a few minutes. Um, She is also the author of books called Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men, and Respectably Queer, Diversity Culture in LGBT Activist Organizations. So she definitely knows what she is talking about. Um, Before I bring Jane on, we want to cover a few of the happenings in the news really quick. And with that, I'm welcome to the show my esteemed co-host and journalist, Brody Levesque.
1: Brody, welcome. Hey, Rob, and good afternoon, good morning, and good day to our listeners around the globe, and thanks for listening. Uh, Today is one day after the vice presidential debate between Democratic candidate, United States Senator Kamala Harris of California, and Vice President Mike Pence. Um, Most of the political pundits and observers feel that uh, Senator Harris held her own uh, and that Vice President Pence didn't really move the ball uh, forward. However, there was an interesting tangential to the entire uh, debate. At one point, a housewife landed on the vice president, which immediately drew the attention of Twitter and Instagram, and it has been declared by most pundits in the Twitterverse and Instagramverse that the fly won the debate. The means are actually coming out are pretty <laughs> funny, so we're going to give last night's debate to the fly. In more serious news, U.S. Yeah, House of Before
0: you move on from that, Brody, um, because I do want to bring up the debate with um, Professor Ward when she comes on, because I think there are some interesting dynamics there. But it's also interesting, if you listen to our show last week, um, I was pondering what the October surprise might be, because there usually is one leading up to the election. Since that time, The president has come down with COVID. Um, The White House has become completely infected on it. Um, The debate schedule is completely upended. Um, It's been a whole new world in just a week.
1: It's been more than a whole new world. I mean, uh, we just got word today uh, that Vice President Pence has canceled uh, further uh, campaigning events uh, in Arizona. He's there currently. And he said it back to Washington. Uh, you know, another senior uh, White House official in charge of security on the complex uh, has gotten violently ill with COVID-19. Not tested positive. He's now reported to be gravely ill. Um, the president, of course, is maintaining that, you know, he's fine. He's great. He's getting the proper treatments. And then he's also blaming now Gold Star mothers and fathers at an event for infecting him. Um, the president has been kind of off the rail the last couple of days and especially in the last 48 hours. Uh, as I started to say, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced today uh, that they're going to be looking at the 25th Amendment. So it's starting to get serious. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, it we've got, um, as I'm on the air now, I, I actually have a couple of my guys working uh, on the story with the Democrats uh, seeking to figure out uh, what all is entailed uh, in invoking the 25th Amendment. The fact that Pence is also headed back to D.C. so quickly means that things are once again moving at a rapid pace. Um, so it's it's one of these situations. Earlier today, uh, the, uh, election, uh, the Commission on um, Presidential Debate, had announced that they were going to do a remote, which President Trump immediately says, well, I'm not doing that. And so the entire um, third debate, which is the second debate between the two presidential candidates is now, quite frankly, up in the air. Um, the, the Democratic uh, challenger, Vice President Biden has already indicated that if President Trump uh, is shedding the virus, he doesn't want to be anywhere near him or the staff. Uh, at the rate of infection on the, you know, in the executive branch right now, that's probably a safe thing to do is stay away right, from exactly. anybody attached to the White House. Um,
0: and quite frankly, and, we don't really need another one of those debates. We don't need yeah. to watch him behave badly Well, on a, stage.
1: you know, that that debate, generally speaking, was just ridiculous. I mean, it it was... Yeah, it served no purpose at the end of the day. Uh, with at least the Lisa debate last night, um, there was tangible, substantial issues. Uh, although the fact checkers uh, that we deployed to fact check uh, found that uh, the vice president unsurprisingly lied his ass off. So,
0: it, Oh, my God. It, oh, my God. You know,
1: <laughs> it's, like, you know, it's like, well, you know, The fruit does not fall too far from the proverbial tree. Um, Well, and the
0: fruit gets flies on it, apparently.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, apparently the fruit is uh, a little ripe. So um, our understanding is things in Washington right now are getting a little tense. The Democrats are basically signaling that they've had enough, uh, whether or not the Republicans in the Senate uh, are going to respect the fact uh, that not only have the wheels come off the American government, uh, but the train wreck continues, uh, is anybody's guess. Um, so, you know, the overarching view right now is, and especially looking at the COVID numbers, which is the really the driving force right now, we have 32 states that have seen sharp increases uh, in COVID-19 um it's just gotten to the point where it's become a crisis situation and of course quite frankly at the end of the day the president of the united states has his head up his ass it's about the kindest thing i can say um you know it just really i've been reporting on american politicians and american presidents for four decades i can safely say I have never seen anything like this that even comes remotely close. And what's really sad is that the syncopants in the Republican party apparently are okay with it. Although I admit Mitch McConnell today admitted that he hasn't been near the White House since August the 9th, because he didn't trust the way they were handling protocol for COVID-19. So uh, you can see, it's just, you know, it's become a mess. mess, Interesting. So he was, so he was not at the um,
0: the event for uh, Amy Barrett?
1: No, he wasn't at the super spreader.
0: Wow, interesting. Um, so one thing uh, I want to touch with you before we bring on our guest is um, around the Supreme Court and the signal by two conservative justices that they, in fact, are going after uh, same-sex marriage eventually. Um, what what are the thoughts on that and, and that opinion that came out this week? Uh,
1: in a completely non-related case, um, but that had an opening, uh, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel uh, Alito, in their written dissent, indicated that one of the reasons uh, that things had uh, been kind of corrupted in an interpretation way was because of, the Ogre and they cited Ogre Rapel as the reason decision and they indicated that the court needed to come back and take a hard look at it and probably do away with it because it infringed on religious liberty which is this has been what we're hearing more and more of um, they've shifted gears from gay people are icky to you know we want to be able to discriminate against you by using our religious liberty so you can't have it both ways the problem is 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 that if the court draws that line in the sand and makes it that way, they are literally asking for a modern day version of the Dred Scott decision, and we know which way that ended up going. Uh, and it wasn't until four bloody years later that that got sorted. so it it really is looking at that. There's an entire generation out there now, two generations that aren't going to tolerate their rights being taken away. And this is something that the conservatives really aren't understanding. They're thinking and operating under, you know, the way that, well, we're the majority and this and that, and it's a court decision, and it's the law of the land. You're going to have Americans say, F you, okay, not going to happen. And, of course, the problem with that is that if they thought Portland was bad, you know, if that spreads out across the United States, it gets uglier and uglier and uglier. And as I've said many times on this show, I've said this to you in private, you know, the problem that you run into is that there's too many weapons on your streets. The entire country's awash in guns. It won't take very long before they start using Second Amendment rights on each other because that's the temperament. And, and it really is one of those things where people saying, you know, we've got to work through the divisiveness and we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Well, you need to dial it back. And the only way you're going to be able to dial it back is to do something that, quite frankly, you know, the Americans seem reluctant to do. You know, My country's done it. The United Kingdom's done it. Australia's done it. Most of Western Europe has done it. In fact, most civilized Western nations and some other nations have done it. And that is you have the freedom of religion. You just don't have the freedom to weaponize it. And this is what the United States is going to have to do. Unfortunately, that's going to take congressional action and probably even yeah. a little change the Constitution.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite following all your th- thread, threads there from same-sex marriage to weaponizing in the streets. I mean, I think, I think there are issues there. I mean, the bottom line is the Supreme Court is crucial to maintaining control over all of those, and we are on the brink of somebody joining it who could, you know, um, push them all together to the way you're describing it. Um, And hopefully that doesn't happen, and hopefully we find an inroads to keep a lid on that. I mean, more to the point of what you're talking about, although it's not philosophically, uh, you know, gay people that are going to do it, but we have that situation in Michigan where, you know, a bunch of militiamen were planning on kidnapping the governor, and, Uh um, you know, that thing went down today. So there is a lot out there that is highly dangerous. I think it is – um, in philosophical buckets, but um, this, this uh, saving grace that has been the Supreme Court could be a free-for-all um, to allow a lot of that <clears throat> to see more light of day, which is unconscionable. And um, it, hopefully people are taking this seriously um, uh, in this upcoming election because there is a lot at stake <laughs> given especially given the fact that the President has gone completely off the rails, um you know that was standing, even if he was in a more sane mode, um we still have a lot at risk. Um, but with that, I want to go ahead and move on to our guest and um, i I'm going to segue that a little bit, but first, um uh, Professor Jane Ward, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We're very excited to talk to you. Um, before we get to the book, I because it came up in our news segment, I did want to get your thoughts on this because thematically it um, is reminiscent of the book um, and the topics that you cover in it. But what were your thoughts on the vice presidential debate and kind of the um, unspoken, uh, you know, subtext that was going on between? The Senator and the Vice President
2: well, I can tell you that I had so much anxiety watching the first presidential debate, and I think even uh you know some of some of that anxiety is related to probably what you're getting at, which is the experience of watching um, as a woman in that case, two men act like um mm-hmm. You know, well, one man act like a middle school bully and they both go at each other, no substance whatsoever, and it almost was um, a little traumatic to watch it. So mm-hmm. for my own mental health, I made the decision not to watch the vice presidential debate, <laughs> though I did watch all of the highlights, life. And, um, you know, uh, certainly many... People in my community, my queer feminist community, had a lot to say about um, how 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 much the debate basically exemplified the kind of experience that women, especially women of color, have all the time of being constantly interrupted and and uh, how much they have to fight to get their voice heard.
0: Yeah, no, it was very evident, and uh, you know there was a certain degree of condescension it uh, you know it was unclear because of who he followed you know it, like Brody's point the, the the apple did not fall far from the tree except it was a little more soft spoken not quite as loud and a little bit more intelligent sounding but still the behavior was there of no matter who the opponent was they were going to talk over them um, but it was off-putting in that it it did have all the pictures of what we've seen so often of mansplaining and, um, you know, just, just general condescension that, right. that was unwarranted. And it was refreshing to have um, uh, Kamala Harris hold her own, which was not, you know, it, I mean, it should be the norm, but it, it seemed out of the norm. for for an intelligent human being to just simply stand up for themselves.
2: Well, maybe one thing we can take from uh, comparing and contrasting the presidential debate and the VP debate is that misogyny is misogyny even when it comes in different styles or different packages.
0: Do you you feel that in 2016 that... um, Had everything been equal and Hillary Clinton had actually been um, Hill Clinton, Mr. Hill Clinton, um, that 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 person would have won, um, but that the the misogyny issue uh, was a, a factor?
2: Oh, well, we know it was a factor because so many people who opposed Hillary Clinton were very explicit about that. So we definitely... No, it was a factor. There was a lot of um, misogynistic rhetoric that circulated around her campaign. And, you know, if you watch the documentary about her life, you know that her entire political career has been plagued by, you know, she's been plagued by sexism. I actually remember as a kid watching Saturday Night Live and um, when, when Bill Clinton was president and I remember laughing at skits they did that made fun of her. That that I I, rem- I remember the joke was that she was basically cold and controlling and manipulating him from behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also know. I mean, we fast forward to uh, you know one of the Republican rallies in um, Orange County. Uh, one of my graduate students came back, he went there for field work and he came back with bumper stickers and all of this, you know, Republican paraphernalia. And it was basically like, make me a sandwich, you know, this kind of thing, like the most 1950s, totally explicit sexist um, propaganda that people were buying. So.
0: Yeah, no, it's, and, and I mean, even the very intro of Hillary Clinton to the public, um, you know, she got in trouble because she defined herself as not um, Mm -hmm. a wife who stays at home and bakes cookies. And that was created such a stir because how dare she imply Mm -hmm. that she was above baking cookies and how malign women who did bake cookies. And, you know, it was this sort of like this, this mind blowing thing that if it was reversed, you know, (laughs) if, if if it was a man saying he didn't stay home and make cookies, nobody Mm would have, anything different about that it was it was was totally obvious which leads me to your book because one of the things that I loved about it right at the outset before I even read any of it was the concept because for me watching what has transpired over the last four years um, has been um, and not that it wasn't part of the culture already but sort of a heightened sense of this Culture that was very much straight men versus straight women um, in our society. I mean, it it feels like the camps behind the two have pulled further away from each other than ever before. And you know, obviously, I'm sitting from the outside, but um, it just that that to me is the appearance of it. Where it's and it's probably because the issues are coming to a head. But um, it kind of goes down to the premise of your book that there is a tragedy of heterosexuality. What inspired you to create this work?
2: Well, you know, I share your perspective as I look at heterosexuality. I think for a lot of us, actually, we look at straight culture and we're struck by the fact that straight men and women don't actually seem like they like each other very much and that's a um, it, it's sort of paradoxical right given that the sexual orientation that we call heterosexuality is supposed to be about a strong desire for or attachment to or orientation toward the opposite sex but a lot of popular culture and political discourse and certainly all of the self-help literature kind of takes for granted, takes this given that men and women don't really enjoy each other's company very much. They don't have much in common. There's a lot of conflict, a lot of disrespect, a lot of alienation, a lot of disappointment, dissatisfaction. And so, you know, I, I was observing that, thinking about that quite a bit. And then trying to reconcile that with another story that we tell in the, in, in the broader culture, which is a story about how hard it is to be gay, that, you know, mm-hmm. um, as you said in the, in the opening of the show, that no a- anyone, if they could, would choose to be straight because straightness means an easier life, a more integrated life, a happier life than being gay. And We've been stuck with that narrative for really over a century now, and it just when you hold those two real you know those two two narratives in view together, you see there's a contradiction there and my experience of my queerness of being of being a lesbian is that. There's absolutely nothing tragic about being a lesbian other than homophobia, but I mostly feel just profound relief to have escaped straight culture. I look at straight culture and I feel um, a lot of sorrow because of how much suffering I see straight women experiencing. And I, and I know from talking with so many queer women, um, Including you know, for the purpose of the book, that many other queer women feel the same way. So what I argue in the book is that the reason that we've been able to sustain this story about how it's so difficult to be gay and any any gay person would choose to be straight if they could, is because the LGBT movement discourse is usually pretty male centric. And that's a narrative that I think, Resonates more for gay men than it does for lesbians because gay men um, do have a certain, you know, set of privileges that are lost when they um, when they come out as gay. But for women, if you think about it, heter- heterosexuality, heterosexual marriage is often the site of straight women greatest misery, you know, it's a site of often violence, both physical and emotional violence and inequality and daily frustration and phenomenal rates of divorce. And so, you know, if you actually take into consideration women's experiences and you think about what it means to be a lesbian, and it's really hard to keep that story about how tragic it is to be gay intact.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's true. I'm, I'm sort of musing a little bit because you bring up some things. I'm just kind of doing some self-examination around in terms of um, the experience of of gay men coming out and women coming out. It, it's it's almost been a case where it, it's like, and and this is a big generalization. I know this is not true. In every single story, but I've just seen that in many cases, when a woman comes out, um, what I've observed is almost an empowerment, and you know, in terms of almost coming into the straight world and being, you know, doors opening a little bit and being a little bit threatening. Whereas the men, you're right; it's like you, you, your privilege is automatically gone, and you are now degraded and 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 in the past, it's been in a very big way. I mean, life-threatening ways. Um, right. One thing I kind of want to go right to some of the content of your book, though. The um, one thing you talk about in there is how um, queer people are viewed as novelties to be consumed mm-hmm. by the straight world. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. So um, there's a chapter of the book in, in which I surveyed queer identified people and asked them what their experience was a straight culture. And I was really interested in offering that perspective to straight people because I think straight allies, um, you know, they have a pretty superficial understanding of queer life. And there are a lot of things about queer life and queer subculture that they appreciate and celebrate. But I think most straight people rarely think about what do their LGBT friends think of them. And so, you know, so much really fascinating feedback came back to me about how queer people view straight culture. And um, and one element of that was the sense that straight people exoticize queer people. Um, They seem to sometimes take take vicarious pleasure in hearing about queer sex practices so that they get to kind of dip a toe into the realm of queer sexual freedom but without having to Mm -hmm. explore it themselves or, you know, deal with any of the identity consequences of it. Um... People also talked about straight people's co-optation of queer spaces. Of course, I I think we talk about this a lot now because it's such a (laughs) visible problem that our pride events are filled with straight people. Our gay bars are filled with straight people. So um, certainly people talked about that. But they talked about many things that troubled them about straight culture. Yeah,
0: and and one thing you talk about in the book is sort of that – sitting on the outside of straight culture, observing it, um, and um, being, literally being an outsider to it where there are, I think you talked about um, um, uh, rituals of straight culture that we are not partaking in and sometimes willingly not partaking in. Um, can you go into those a little bit?
2: Sure, I mean one of the things that can strike queer people as very bizarre about straight rituals is that many of the very rituals that are intended to celebrate straight people's relationships um you know like uh, the bachelor you know the the wedding night or, or I'm sorry the the marriage the bachelor and bachelorette party. This kind of thing, the baby shower, are often celebrations that straight couples don't want to experience together. So they gender segregate. Hmm. So the couple's having a baby, and it's going to be a baby shower, but it's very common that men don't even attend. So that that event is perceived to be an event for women. And the night before getting married, there's this tradition in straight culture that you know, straight men and women don't actually want to spend time with each other that night. It's like a last night of freedom before the old ball and chain, <laughs> before getting locked <laughs> down. And so there's this whole, you know, ritual around going out and um, I guess, you know, like sewing while those this kind of stuff, you know, I, I mean, I could go on gender reveal parties, all the ways that straight people are invested in the gender binary and you take the gender binary so seriously. And now we know after the latest fires, one of which was started by gender reveal party pyrotechnics, that these, these things actually are dangerous to all of us, you know. And so uh, part, part of what's being described in the book is, how queer people try to um, not just that they're perplexed by these experiences, but that they often feel compelled to participate in them because, you know, most of us have a lot of time, and how we try to shield ourselves or protect ourselves from maybe the psychological harm that those kinds of rituals cause when we have to participate in them.
0: Yeah, no, that oh, it, for- it's, it's, I'm just the things you're bringing up are are sort of like the obvious things that have been there. And I'm really glad you're kind of putting a a spotlight on them because they're, they're absolutely true that it's, it is
1: pretty bizarre. Brody. I think it also is quite clearly defined by toxic masculinity. And this is an issue that, in the last probably close to a hundred years has swung into uh, an area that makes it very difficult uh, particularly for heterosexuals um, to work around the patriarchal toxic, you know, model of what a man should be, what a woman should be. It goes actually beyond you know, uh, getting themselves locked into, you know, the gender identity. It must be this way because it's biological. They don't allow themselves a lot of flexibility. And a tremendous amount of that um, is perpetrated by the Christian right, by the Muslim right or the Muslim hardliners, or by the Jewish right or hardliners. I, I can cite, as I'm sure, Professor, you could too, Several studies, for example, if you look at Orthodox Jews, I, 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 for a fact, have reported on one instance where they took up space on an airplane, but because there was two or three women sitting in the general area, they would not move, they wouldn't want the woman around them, and as a matter of fact, that flight, you know, got canceled and they all got booted off the plane. Now, someone accuse me of saying, well, that's an extreme example. Actually, no, it's not. You look at popular culture. You look at the way women are portrayed. You look at the way men are portrayed. You look at the way that the you know young have been brought up to believe in certain you know functions and roles. And this is outside of, uh, of queer culture. And I think that another part of the problem, though, is that some of that does bleed over because I've seen you know uh, misogynistic things by gay men uh, being directed. You know, towards lesbians and trans women in particular, uh, which I find personally particularly onerous. Um, so it, it, it goes beyond that. But I think there's an underlying problem that, especially in the American culture, they don't really want to tackle toxic masculinity and its causes uh, and, and combat it directly. And it bleeds over into all these other areas. Professor, do you agree?
2: Yes, I, I agree with much of what you said. I mean, this this book is not a book that's about patriarchy generally, but but is about modern heterosexuality, which really has quite and 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 it's also about secular modern heterosexuality, which has a pretty short history because the concept of heterosexuality and homosexuality. Um, didn't get invented, those terms weren't invented until the late 19th century. And it took actually several decades for them to circulate broadly enough that most people would have learned to think of themselves as having um, a fixed sexual constitution. And so I start in this book with the early 20th century looking at the rise, looking at the emergence of marriage advice manuals. So these were books that were written to help straight couples resolve the tensions that were present in their marriages. And it's really interesting. I was shocked to discover that most of these books between, written between 1910 and 1930s were written by eugenicists, by um, physicians and sexologists who were very active in the eugenics movement. Who, in the in the United States anyway, who were invested in seeing white families flourish and in seeing white couples have white babies, and they knew that that project was threatened by men's violence. So exactly the toxic masculinity that you named. They. In in working with couples, whether they were family physicians and saw them as patients or sexological researchers, they were struck by how common marital rape was, that women were often sexually assaulted on their first night of marriage and came to loathe their husbands. There was a lot of mutual repulsion, actually, um, between men and women intent the descriptive language that's used in these books to describe the the profoundly dysfunctional mm-hmm. of heterosexual marriages so they set out to try to heal them and you know the way that they did this is to promote um you know early in the 20th century to promote various kinds of hygiene interventions and try to teach men to be gentler with women and try to teach women that to just be more understanding that a certain amount of brutishness was part of men's, you know, the, the, the nature of manhood. Um, and then by, you know, mid century, it evolved as the this kind of psychology um, is in, is in full swing and the shift becomes, shift to men and women's personalities and how they're fundamentally at odds and how much men and women hate each other and how can we fix this. And what I show in the book is that we now have about 120 years of so-called expert advice about how to get men and women to like one another and live together harmoniously. And none of these um, interventions that have been proposed actually work at all. And the reason Mm -hmm. they don't work is because all of these experts have been unwilling to challenge the gender binary itself. They take Mm -hmm. as that men and women are two different kinds of people from two different planets, if we're thinking about gray and that they have two different ways of communicating, two different sets of things that they want out of life, two different understandings of love, two different totally different relationships with sex. And there's, so invested in that, that the only place that they can really go with that is that men and women have to basically learn to fake it, to, like, accommodate, you know, as if they're in a cross-cultural relationship, you know, they have to just tolerate, be gracious, um, behave in ways they don't really want to in order to keep the peace, and that's... Is a very very sad story, and it has doesn't look anything like my experience of being a lesbian. So right. I, wa- I want I wanted to just expose that you know heterosexuality, what for for centuries what we now call heterosexuality, we say opposite sex marriage, was a an economic and labor contract. It was utterly pragmatic and no one expected men and women to actually like each other. I mean, there was sometimes sort of like chivalry love or uh, courtly love, but those were rare cases. And for the most part, marriage was just, uh, it it was a labor institution not until the 19th century, the concept of romantic love and companionate marriage that gets pushed by, you know, first wave feminists, do straight people start to feel the pressure that they're actually supposed to like each other a little bit. And this is a difficult project because it's utterly new. You cannot just fix centuries of patriarchy overnight. And so I argue that we're really in a process of healing in the same way we might think of this country as in a process of healing or really reckoning with Mm -hmm. four centuries of white supremacy. We're really still at the beginning stages of doing the work of figuring out how men and women can be in healthy relationships with one another when for so long men have hated women.
0: No, I think I think that's fascinating, and, and um, I, I like what Brody was saying about sort of the religious um, aspect of the world, which, by the way, is not just America. I mean, it, it, I lived in Europe when I was younger, and it was definitely part of the culture. In European culture, it's I mean, it is, and and in the African culture, it is super strong. Um, but uh, the thing that I loved about the book was seeing how pervasive it is in just the secular, non-religious part of our world it's not tied to some religious tradition this is part of kind of the heterosexual norm of 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 the secular world and and the things you're talking about i think um i I guess i I find a lot of resonance in because of having been in the same-sex marriage fight for years and the thing that even during those discussions that i always came to was you know, the things that were holding people back from accepting same-sex marriage was same-sex marriage was essentially two people coming together who had no other um, role-playing need for each other other than that they wanted to be together. In other words, it wasn't somebody who was the financial breadwinner versus the homemaker coming together to create a whole. It was, it was much more self-defined between the two individuals. It was where marriage had evolved to a place where two equals could unite in and create a family structure. Um, and I've also, in my advocacy work, I found when, um, because part of my work has been as a gay dad, and one of the things that I came to when it came to um, having the, the talk, the sex talk with my sons, I realized that the norm was always to create that talk out of the where do babies come from talk. That's where it all evolved on the heterosexual level. In fact, I heard two lesbians talking to their child about it, and they too were using that as the core of it. And I'm sitting there listening to them do this and kind of going, but you're now describing something that you're not even part of. I mean, that isn't part of your relationship, and you're, you're, you're telling your child that this is what sexuality is. And so when I talked to my son, it was to create a whole environment of what sexuality was and not just simply a vehicle for reproduction. And that's why a lot of everything you're saying in terms of these rituals that, that the parties are avoiding each other is, I, I think, completely fascinating. Um uh I mean it's uh I, I think this is a, a super important work that I hope people um look at and and um and, and absorb. Um one thing I wanted to ask you about was um you talk about some elements in society that have recognized this and tried to change the narrative, like um Naomi Wolf's radical heterosexuality um, what are those and how have they worked
2: well um, so many of the heterosexual feminists who have grappled with this problem have produced really smart analyses have you know offered up very compelling descriptions of the problem. And in the end, often they double down on the gender binary. They come right back to the same old story about men and women's fundamental difference. So in some cases, they'll say, you know, and this was true of Naomi Naomi Wolf, you see a little bit of this in someone like Esther Perel Um, who's another self-help writer who writes a lot about sex and intimacy that people really like, that, you know, that basically what keeps a relationship um, healthy, exciting, and alive is oppositeness. Um, And either oppositeness or um, distance or mystery, this kind of thing. And not often in the self-help literature for straight people, gets kind of wrapped up with like manipulations. Like if you really want to seduce a man, you should or or seduce a woman, you should say these kinds of lines. You should never be honest about this. You should, you know, just like a lot of manipulation. And that's really um, at odds with Some of the very beautiful writing that came out, especially in the gay liberation period in the 1970s, about how part of the beauty of queer relationships was that queer people could imagine love, not through oppositeness, but through identification, not through like subject-object, but through a subject-subject desire. And so... Audrey Lorde wrote about this, Harry Hay wrote about this, um, a lot of lesbian feminists wrote about this, but, you know, when you um, understand your queerness as not just about your sexuality, but as having a, having a political or a liberatory aspect to it, then when you are attracted to, let's say, you know, women, I'm talking about women here, um, it's not just that you're, like, attracted to women's bodies, it's that you're invested in women as a group, it's that Mm -hmm. you are, you want women's collective freedom, you like women so much that you actually really like women, you want what's best for women, and this is the piece that is missing in so much of street cultural discourse, which, you know, is and it's a, it's a piece that's especially missing for straight men, which is that, you know, to have a really robust heterosexuality, to really um, be so into women, so passionately desirous of women I don't know what all words I can say on this radio show. Normally, I use the f. I use the f word in my book, like to really warn. You
0: you may, you may go ahead and use it on this show. We are not, we are not censored.
2: (laughs) If you want to know, like how to respect women and suck women at the same time, you know, because this isn't just about like, I don't know, flowers and scented candles or whatever. I'm talking about, you know, like real lust right you can have both of those exist together and dykes know how to do it and we know how to lust after women and do that respectfully because we know that our lust for women is inseparable from our desire for what's best for women collectively for women's collective freedom their collective sexual freedom economic freedom self-determination. Those are all interconnected. So I want that for men. I want that for straight men, that they are so into women that they have no other choice but to be feminist.
0: No, that's that's awesome. And and, and part of that imagination you talked about, that wishing for straight people to imagine for themselves. Um, one thing in the book you observe that the show's Friends, The Cosby Show, and Family Ties, um, you called them um, fantasies um, of the heterosexual male and female relationships. Uh, why are they fantasies and what of them are ideals that you don't think are being
2: realized? Um, yeah, so those were, the reason that I call them fantasies is that if you com- contrast the, the best selling self-help books for women that came out around the same time. They were books like um, uh, Men Who Hate Women and the Women Who Love Them. Uh, They were um, books about women who hated themselves. They were books about abusive husbands and boyfriends. And so... I contrasted those with the television shows that were popular at the time, which were these egalitarian relationships um, in which husbands were really loving, really supportive of their wives. And you know that we often use television that way is that it describes it it represents a sort of aspiration. And other feminist scholars have talked about this, that, you know, one of, one of the reasons that women are, are so obsessed with reality shows about birthing and the wedding day, there's now so many reality shows that are about weddings, the wedding dress, the wedding ring, the day itself, or the, you know, bridezilla, all of this, is because straight women are told that heterosexuality is going to make them. So blissfully happy and then they get into it, you know, they get married, they get beyond the wedding day, and it's filled with disappointment and so one way to cope with that disappointment is to relive the fantasy by watching it on television, you know, other people's marriages, other people's birth stories, you know, kind of revisiting these peak moments that are supposed to be so meaningful for straight people even though it's all gone to shit after that so I, I think similarly those television shows in the 80s and 90s they were describing a kind of aspiration for women for what this new egalitarian um, family or communal living could be like you know in, in the case of Friends mm-hmm. um, that was disconnected from what most Great women
0: were actually experiencing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, and I thought of this before when you were talking earlier about how there was a sort of a surprise on the part of, I think it was HBO, um, when they had two shows on. One was Sex in the City and the other was Queer Eye for the um, – no, I mean, um, Queer, uh, Queer as Folk. And both those shows ended up attracting the opposite audience that they were anticipating the queer as folk show ended up having this huge straight woman audience who liked what you were describing before about that, that, um, um, wanting to sort of observe and, and the freedom of, of the, the gay sex culture. And then gay men were attracted to sex in the city because of the, um, the, companionship of the four women you know and that they both spoke to the opposite audience which I thought was fascinating
2: It is fascinating and the fact that straight women um, love watching what well, they liked Chris soap, but they also love gay porn many straight women are really into gay, gay porn and you know we, we know why that is which is that the world of porn is so saturated with images of women as the sex object Mm -hmm. and often there's so much misogyny bound up with that that it's such a relief for women viewers and I you know I know a lot of a lot of lesbians who also watch gay porn to just get to watch porn that doesn't have any women in it you don't you never have to worry that there's going to be a cringe cringeworthy moment in which a woman is being you know being forced to do something she doesn't want to do wow
0: that's that's really interesting you just gave me an aha moment because they talk about that in the film um the kids are all right about uh, uh, a lesbian couple that watches gay male porn and your explanation just now is the best on why, why that, that was attractive to them. I really didn't get that before. That, that's fascinating. Um, Brody, yep. do you have any final
1: questions? <clears throat> no, I don't. I have a rather tragic announcement to make to our listeners. A guest of the show and a long, long-time friend of mine, Journalist and founder of TransGrid, a blog, probably one of the best trans journalists there is, or was, Monica Roberts has passed away. Oh, no. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so if you guys will excuse me, uh, I need to hop off.
0: Yeah, no problem. No problem, buddy. Um,
1: and we're we're almost out of time. um uh,
0: Jane, a fascinating conversation. What um, uh, what have we not asked or not talked about that we should have?
2: <laughs> well, you did a wonderful job of covering many, many of the bases. There's, a, there's so much more in this book, a lot of historical background. And then also I did um, some field work inside the seduction industry, um, you know, investigating men who pay for seduction and dating coaches to teach them how to seduce women and that's in the book as well a lot on heterosexual self-help and why it doesn't actually help and anyone that's interested the book is again called the tragedy of heterosexuality it's on um, amazon but you can also get it from nyu press And if you're interested in my work, you can find me at jamesbordphd.com. And I also tweet at thequeerjane.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And and fascinating book. Definitely pick it up, folks. Um, uh, It it is an eight page turner and it it really is a thought provoker that I think um, most people really need to take a look at. Um, uh, We need to question our world and This does a very, very good job in doing that. Um, Professor Jane Ward, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to thank Brody, who has stepped off, and I want to thank our listeners. Um, We are around every week. We will have a new show next week. Please do subscribe to us. You can find us on any podcast app. Um, Just search for Rated LGBT Radio and subscribe. Tell your friends. We'll be back here again next week, same channel, same place, and with something very intriguing to talk about. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.